0: Hello, I'm Andrew Scrivani, And I'm Chef John. Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Chef John
1: Podcast. It is kind of spooky around here. Uh, We're just a few days from Halloween. You're a big Halloween fan, John.
0: I am a huge Halloween fan. How you doing, Andrew? I'm good. Yeah, you know why? Uh, And it's for no reason probably anyone would guess, but Michelle and I generally plant our garlic Speaking of vampires, on or around Halloween. So that's always kind of a highlight in the year for us, garden-wise. So uh, above and beyond that, we don't get any trick-or-treaters. We're in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) A 150-yard driveway that comes up to a house that you probably wouldn't just wander up to unless you had an invitation. So uh, we don't have to buy any Halloween candy. But to make up for it, maybe I will just eat a little bit. If I can find some Boston baked beans. Okay. Well I got a whole jar of, don't be shaking those Tic Tacs, trying to make it sound like big beans. I brought a whole jar of M&M peanut. Think I just fell off the good and plenty truck? Come on. Yeah, I just brought the
1: whole jar. I'm going to eat them throughout the show. All right. 30 pounds by the time we finish up today. But of course, we're going to have all kinds of Halloween fun today, as well as some of our favorite segments as we go through today's show. So as we always do, we have to take a moment to do a little housekeeping. We really encourage you to interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at Chef John Pod. We can't express how much we love your comments and suggestions. So please keep them coming and go ahead and pause this episode and then go leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice.
0: With what, John? If possible, a five-star review with maybe a few uh, kind words, a comment, a question, a concern. Although we always prefer a compliment over a concern, but I'm burying the lead. The important part is leave us a five-star review and if possible, a few words of wisdom and we would uh, greatly appreciate it as would these algorithms I keep hearing about. They're very spooky. They are. And finally, you could
1: leave us a message on our website, chefjohnpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail. John really
0: likes those. And we could feature it on a future show. Yes. And in fact, I get no voicemails in real life. So when it comes to voicemails, <laughs> the only thing I have. So please, people.
1: You don't want John to feel lonely.
0: Throw Chef John a bone. Or for you vegetarians, a twig.
1: <laughs> throw Chef John a twig. That brings us right into our first segment, which is
0: Fun Food Facts, Halloween Edition. And by the way, I'll be the judge of that. What do you mean you'll be a judge? They're food facts until otherwise considered fun. As you know, I like to go into these things cold where you just shock me and awe me with your historical knowledge. So I'm ready. I hope it's frightening.
1: Staying on theme here, we are going to talk a little bit about the history of trick-or-treating. This has been something that's been happening here in the US for over a century, and it has sort of murky origins all around the world. And, you know, some of it can be identified as ancient Celtic. You say Celtic or Celtic, John? I'm a Celtic
0: guy, which, you know, of course, the Boston Celtics, one of the most well known <laughs> sports franchises in the world. So if they're going to be called themselves the Celtics, I think it's good enough for me.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to go with that too. But one of the things I've learned is that poor people would visit the houses of wealthier families and receive pastries called soul cakes in exchange for a promise to pray for the soul of the homeowner's dead relatives. I think this was British. This is a bit spooky and weird. I've never heard of this. And we actually know what soul cakes are. Have you heard of soul cakes,
0: John? I have not. I've heard of Hot cross buns, which is the closest thing I could think of to that.
1: Maybe they've made this on the British Baking Show. We have to find this out if they've made basic soul cakes. But they are a traditional English sweet cookie with a cross on top filled with raisins and touches spices. Uh, Sounds a lot like uh, the P word. Yeah. Pumpkin spice. Sounds a lot like that. Ground cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, ginger. Keep going anyway. All right. Well, the reason they're called this is known as souling. The practice was later taken up by children who would go door to door and ask for gifts such as food or money or ale.
0: Now we're talking. (laughs) Uh, Hello, sir.
1: Could I have some ale? This happens to me every Halloween. I really like this. It's a really fun part of my day giving alcohol to minors. Yes, this is something that the police have been warning me about that this is not appropriate. But, you know, it is tradition. In Scotland and Ireland, young people took part in a tradition called guising. Now, of course, guising reminds you of disguise and people would dress up in costumes and accept offerings from households. So this is where all of these things started to blend together. Of course, America is the blending pot of the world. And all of these traditions sort of came here and all sort of merged together and formed trick-or-treating. So this is an awful lot of information here, but I like the idea that we can kind of focus on some of these things that we haven't heard of before, like soul cakes and guising and offering children ale.
0: (laughs) Could you imagine if things had taken just a little bit of a turn, you know, back when, if just certain things had kind of broken certain ways, we could be actually giving out beer when people ring the bell. I would assume that the children would be taking the ale back home to Ma and Pa. Yeah, I should have clarified. Kids are in their costumes to impress the person opening the door. If they're found worthy, then the adults get the double IPA. (laughs) All right. Well,
1: that is our fun food fact segment Halloween edition. It almost went off the
0: rails. I did try to get it off the rails, but... I actually enjoyed this one. You know, I won't say more than the typical historical list you've come up with, but it did mostly deal with beer. So I have no complaints. But anyway, no, good job. In fact, I'm not even going to include any of these. And what did we learn today? Really? Well, I actually checked that. I might not be able to think of anything else. British Soul Cakes. Yeah, I don't think they've done that on British Baking Show because as you know, I am uh, quite the fanatic and I probably would have seen that or already done a video of it. So I'm going to do some more research on that. I might have to do a Soul Cake video. The name is catchy.
1: A new segment here on the Chef John Podcast. We're going to call this one Storytime. Gather round, children. It's storytime here at the Chef John Podcast. In this episode, in honor of Halloween, I will talk very funny. Our stories will be about things that we are deathly afraid of
0: relating to the food world. Ooh, very, very scary. I think we actually bought a sound effect for that. Oh, we did. Yeah. So we'll we'll use yours, too. And then our lovely and talented producer can throw in the actual one. It wasn't as haunting as I would hoped. Well, I'm sorry.
1: I mean, my performance is a little off today. I haven't eaten enough candy yet.
0: You and ghost sounds. It's always
1: been a problem. It's true. But we all know that John is deathly afraid of flying. We've already been down this road quite a few times. But John, tell us something else that really scares you, specifically related to the food world.
0: Well, w- when I hear this question, the first thing that comes to mind, and you have to have worked in a professional kitchen to appreciate this. Just like in home kitchens, we have foil, we have saran wrap, but they're not in little, you know, one and a half by one and a half inch, 12 inch length boxes. These packages, these containers, would holds the roll of plastic wrap, it's at least 10 pounds. It is probably 24 to 30 inches wide. The size of the, it's about a six by six inch box. And then the length, whatever I just said. And the cutting edge is this really long, really sharp serrated piece that goes along the entire front length of these boxes. And you pull off the plastic wrap over your hotel pan or your pot or whatever you're wrapping up in the restaurant. And you, you know, do the karate chop with your hand across the plastic to tear it off. And you keep wrapping your mise en place and so forth. And it's a bad idea, but cooks always kind of leave these up on shelves, you know, over the hotline or off to the side where your uh, rest of your utensils are. And every once in a while, and by once in a while, I mean like once every six months, one of these things will start to kind of fall off the shelf. And you know what you don't want to do when that happens? Try to catch it. Try to catch it. Same thing. If you ever drop a knife, never try to catch a falling knife, which by the way, foreshadowing, that is one of my favorite financial world chestnuts of wisdom. Never catch a falling knife means don't buy stock on the way down. But anyway, someone will do the unthinkable and try to catch one of these 20-pound boxes of saran wrap, which is now not a 20-pound box of saran wrap. It is a 20-pound serrated knife falling through the air. (laughs) And I've seen some of the most horrific cuts I've ever seen in the kitchen because of this thing. Because a knife is one thing, it's a nice clean cut, You get a few stitches, you got a war story. These things just tear and rip the flesh. They're like some kind of medieval weapon. And people either run their hand across it or their arm reaching for something. Or like I said, they drop it, try to catch it, goes through half their finger. Because these things are just so heavy and so sharp and serrated. So they don't care. Bone, tendon, doesn't matter to the cutter. So I used to have this just irrational fear, this phobia of these saran wraps in a kitchen because they're just so big and intimidating. And I've seen them do their worst on too many occasions to mention. Now, happily, they never got me other than just a brush by a few little, you know, very minor injuries. I have not gone totally unscathed, but I've not like almost lost a finger like I've seen other people. So that is one thing in a kitchen context, food context that I am definitely afraid of giant industrial size saran wrap and foil wraps that have the long 30 inch deadly blade attached to them. It's completely uncovered by anything. It's just on the front because, hey, it's a kitchen. You guys will be fine. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but they're intimidating and they can do a scary amount of damage.
1: Yes, I have seen those. I try to stay clear of those. And yes, catching one coming down off of a five foot shelf will definitely tear up some flesh. So- I have handled all sorts of dangerous instruments in my life in the kitchen, John. I'm sure you have as well. Sharp knives of all kinds, blow torches, all kinds of heating elements and other scary things. But nothing, nothing in this world scares me more in a kitchen than a mandolin. The mandolin is a menace. It is a menace to kitchens. I have yet to see a kitchen that has a mandoline that doesn't have at least a couple of notches in its belt that's gotten quite a few people. And it doesn't matter. You could be using it. You could be reaching for it to get it off the shelf. You could be washing it. You can be getting it out of the drain board. You could be drying it. Whatever you're doing, the mandoline will get you. The mandoline is relentless. It is a bloodthirsty instrument. It wants you. It wants to hurt you. And it doesn't ever, ever let you forget it. I actually got to a point where I have a chainmail glove that I wear, <laughs> like a medieval chainmail glove. That if I have to use a mandolin for any reason whatsoever, I wear a chainmail glove. Yes,
0: I could not agree more. Very terrifying. I do also have the chainmail glove, which I never use. But to make up for it, I also do not use the guide. You know, when you've cut enough vegetables on a mandolin, which I say mandolin. Now, is this a Staten Island pronunciation, mandolin? Because as you know, I always assume you're correct and I'm wrong.
1: Well, a mandolin to me is an instrument that my Italian uncle played.
0: Okay. But anyway, yes, they are deadly. And of course, the ones we cut ourselves on at home are a quarter of the size of the ones in the restaurants, which will take off not just one fingertip, they'll take off all five. In fact, if you're going to get into, you know, bank robbery and uh, jewel theft, and you want to lose the fingerprints, I would just say, do a stage at a restaurant for about (laughs) six months. Don't use the guide or the glove, and you should be all set. If that doesn't get you, the burns will. But anyway, yes, it is a very terrifying piece of equipment. Unfortunately, there is nothing more efficient or more useful for many of these kitchen-type vegetable slicing jobs. I mean, if you're trying to make a perfect potato gratin, you got to use a mandolin.
1: Yes, you do. And that's why it's so insidious, John. Yes. Yes. But there's not a potato gratin that's made in this country without a little bit of human blood in it.
0: That's right. Six percent of all potato dishes served in professional kitchens have a little bit of human blood. The mandolin, a cruel mistress. Be careful. Our favorite segment here at the Chef
1: John podcast, pairings, where we talk about what we're watching and what it makes us want to eat.
0: John, what are you watching? Well, I am currently in the middle of, I think, season three of Industry on HBO, which, and I didn't invent this, but I completely agree with it, is being called a cross between succession and euphoria. Wow. So it's kind of the world of high finance through the eyes of some 20 something just getting started in the industry, hence the name. Uh, They work for a giant investment bank. Corporation thing in London, which I find very interesting because 99.7% of any shows about this topic are based in New York, of course, in Wall Street. And, it, you know, it gets a little tiresome. So I thought this was really cool that it was based in London, even more so. As you know, I like my streaming television with British accents whenever possible. And I tend to uh, enjoy the British uh, casual snacking type food also. So this worked on many levels for me. It is really, I think, a fascinating look inside that business. They don't even pretend to try to dumb it down at all with the technical jargon, uh, the financial trade words. And, you know, some shows they'll be like, Jim will yell to Mary, like, we got to short that stock. And then the other person goes, you mean if it goes down, we make money? <laughs> is that what you're saying, Jim? Like, so they do that little bit of explanation. Like, I don't know if you watch billions, they'll do that sometimes. They'll stop the scene and be like, You mean if he buys those swaps, we can do that? wasn't even in the scene, just sitting at the desk, like explains it for four seconds. But <laughs> the industry does not do that. They could care less if you know what a short sale is or a hedge fund. And the beauty of it is you don't need to know anything because it doesn't matter. They know what they're talking about. And it's all about, them sort of making their way through the business with the classic moral ethical dilemmas that pop up like i know what we should do but i really also would much rather do this which may or may not be perfectly above board but close enough and so there's a lot of that going on gratuitous sex all over the place be careful be careful (laughs) i think that's what kind of drew the euphoria comparisons They are not shy with the uh, expression of person-on-person romantic interactions. I
1: can't watch Euphoria, John. I don't think anybody our age should watch it. I feel dirty if I watch that show. No, I have to
0: watch it so I can understand what the kids are up to these days.
1: No, that's the problem. I have a kid like in that age range. Well, you for sure should not watch it. I'm not watching that. Uh, But I'll watch
0: it and let you know. Like reading a
1: diary. It's horrible.
0: Exactly. So industry, highly entertaining very much cutting edge. I've seen things on that show I've literally never seen on any show, which is saying something because like you see everything now. And to pair with industry, I'm going to go with a classic sausage roll. Now not the what we call them, pigs in a blanket over here where you wrap it in some you know croissant dough from the, I'm talking about a proper British sausage roll where you take some pastry either puff pastry or some pie crust short dough and you make a beautiful really highly flavored sausage ground meat mixture and you make a rope across the length of your pastry you roll it up, you cut it in slices a couple inches thick, paint it with egg wash, maybe some sesame seeds, maybe some poppy seeds, maybe sea salt whatever you're into. you bake them off until they're just browned and crispy. And you have these perfect little sausage sandwich bites, these sausage pastries, Uh, one of my favorite all-time foods. And as you know, I like things that I can just sit on the recliner and pop in my mouth. (laughs) So I'm going to enjoy a nice British sausage roll. And yes, that would be a, a delicious evening of entertainment.
1: I don't watch anything about money people. Because right. I just have such disdain for money people on that level, like the billions show or what's the other one? Um,
0: yeah, yeah, any of that. Brilliant,
1: though. Uh, I know it's all really well written and it's really engaging, but it's just too close to real life, man. You know?
0: Well, if it makes you feel any better, what I find sort of interesting about industry and billions and succession, to a certain extent, that's sort of like the poster impression, but. The best parts of the show really have nothing to do with the wealth aspect. It's always like, you know, some of these people, you're like, God, I I bet they wish they were poor. It doesn't necessarily glorify it or remind you of some rich D-bags you might have bump into you down on whatever it is street. Trying to think of the actual streets around Wall Street so I could sound like I've been to New York before. Like John
1: Street or, yeah. Yeah,
0: John. And there's another one. John and. Andrew Street, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's it. But anyway, yeah. So I'm not trying to talk you into it, but if you're only not watching because you're just not into having to have to look at that world be forced upon you, I would say maybe reconsider. All
1: right. Well, everything else that I've watched because of you and because of this show, I've yet to be disappointed.
0: And by the way, forget Billions and Succession. Just go straight to industry. Those other ones are kind of training shows for industry. Like Billions has a lot of humor to it. It's kind of tongue in cheek. They have this stupid runny thing where they just do like, Vague references, like vague, vague, like is so-and-so, which was like not Aristotle, but it was like a student of Aristotle that like three people know. They do that on Billions all the time. So that's much more tongue in cheek, laughing at ourselves for being such geeks and nerds with all this info in our brains. Industry is just straight, raw, real talk as the kid's like to say these days.
1: Well, John, I will absolutely try to check that out. And uh, I have one that's a little bit more on theme for this week. My show is a bit spooky and creepy. It is a show on Hulu that stars Steve Carell, and it's called The Patient. Now, The Patient is about a psychiatrist who has sort of this enigmatic and troubled patient who ultimately ends up kidnapping him and keeping him in his basement. Because when they were in session in the doctor's office, he never felt like he could be truly honest about the fact that he was a serial killer. So he basically kidnaps his therapist because he's a serial killer and he wants to stop killing and he doesn't want to feel this way anymore. So he figures the only way to do this is to be able to come out to his therapist, but in a very controlled environment, such as a kidnapping. And they sit down every night and have a session. Now, of course, this is not an ideal situation for the doctor. And I'm not quite sure this is how therapy is supposed to work, but it is seriously creepy, very well written. And Steve Carell is just fantastic. So my pairing is a little bit related. Sam, who's the captor, he's a regular person who has a job and his job is to inspect restaurants. So he has a lot of knowledge about food. So every night he brings his doctor all kinds of like gourmet takeout. And then he explains all the food to him before they start the session where he's confessing to killing people. So it's quite bizarre, but it makes me want takeout food, really high-end takeout food. So whenever I watch the patient, what I want to do is I want to call ahead to some of the better takeout in my area, whether I'm in New Jersey or I'm in New York, and I will enjoy the patient with some beautiful takeout from maybe pig and cow on Clinton Street or maybe. Taka here in Asbury Park,
0: because that's what it really makes me want to eat. That's so funny. That was your pairing, because I watched the trailer a day or two ago, and I was thinking, man, that looks like a show I would love, because Steve Carell doesn't do any bad shows. Nope. His, like, worst performance ever ever maybe was 40 year old virgin and <laughs> the one that made him famous yeah yeah and he was brilliant in that and that was like maybe his worst role so that tells you something and if anyone worried that andrew just spoiled the show for you he did not every single thing he just said is in the trailer <laughs> right that was the only thing i watched it and i'm like oh this trailer is not very afraid to kind of tell you what the entire show is about like right now in a minute and a half. So that sounds like a great pairing for that scenario, some takeout food, because, you know, they're clearly not going out together. And that sounds delicious and entertaining. One of our favorite combinations around here. So, John, are you ready for
1: our top five this week?
0: Well, Andrew, we're doing our top five food epiphanies. Basically, a taste, a drink, a meal, a recipe that caused some kind of profound, sudden, striking realization that changed how you thought of something food-related for the rest of your life. I am so ready. I am very much looking forward to this. As you know, I did come up with this week's top five. And when I did, I was thinking, are we going to be able to think of five each? Because an epiphany is a completely overused phrase. People are like, oh, man, that new shampoo was an epiphany. Like, no, it was not. You changed shampoos that doesn't count as an epiphany. And I know, sorry, no offense. I'm not talking about us. (laughs) But anyway, people throw the word epiphany around very loosely. I was thinking, are Andrew and I going to be able to come up with five legit epiphanies, which we are defining as this sort of profound, sudden realization where you're like, oh, duh, yes, I understand this now. But I think we did. And I'm excited to hear yours. Would you like to go first or would you like me to go?
1: This was your idea for this week. So I think that we should save yours for last because I don't know that mine will measure up to yours, but I will give it a shot. That's all we ask. <laughs> all right. So coming in at number five, Martha Rose Schulman's chicken bouillabaisse. Now, why is this an epiphany? The thing is, I had been shooting Martha Rose's recipes for eight years, five a week for eight years. And I can't tell you how many chicken recipes there were. And I can't tell you how many chicken recipes that I've made or photographed in my life. And I can't even bear to think about how many chicken recipes I've eaten in my life. But after all that chicken, this recipe was something that took me by surprise that I could enjoy a chicken recipe this much. And as you know, a bouillabaisse is a traditional French seafood dish. But she took the basics of a bouillabaisse and then used chicken as the protein instead of fish. And man, was it absolutely delicious. And it was just like sort of a little bit mind blowing that after all this chicken in my life, after all these Martha Rose recipes that I've photographed and shot, that this one stood out above the rest. And it was fantastic. And it kind of opened my eyes to just even something that is so overdone and so many recipes, you could still find something that really speaks to you and makes you want to eat it over and over again. So I've made this recipe quite a few times. It's available on the NYT cooking app. If you want to make it, I would highly recommend it. And the picture I took of it, it was done with love because man, did I love that recipe. And that brings us to number four, John. A Cochon du lait in Scott, Louisiana. Now, what is a Cochon du lait? It's basically a pig roast. But the thing that was an epiphany for me was that this entire community came out for this pig roast in Cajun country. And it was like a potluck. So pigs were cooking on the spits and out on the barbecues and then the smokers. And then everybody brought all these other things. And the reason it's sort of an epiphany for me was I'd never had this type of an experience before in this type of a community event. And it so influenced me that later on in my career, I had to shoot a story about Cajun food. And the memories and the things that I learned at this, and the fact is everything down to the plates and the silverware and the way people were dressed and just the way people interacted all influenced the photography. So it was a real moment for me to like have this sort of cultural experience that I had never had before. And the food was fantastic. But it was more about the sort of environment that I was in and how all of these people came together. And this was sort of an annual event. And I felt honored to be there. So this was a real sort of awakening for me about the power of community and food, which brings us to number three, John, tomatoes in the Berkshires in September. Now, I had this time where I was up there in the Berkshires, which is the mountain range right on the border of Massachusetts and New York. And this is prime tomato season. And I don't know what it was, but I mean, again, I've been eating tomatoes my whole life and I had these tomatoes there that I've been chasing the rest of my life. They were these big juicy beefsteak tomatoes, so sweet just so delicious. We cooked them with everything. We had green tomatoes, we had heirloom tomatoes, all of these amazing tomatoes were available to us. We spent the weekend up there. And all we did was cook and eat tomatoes. And it's like, you know, you're chasing the dream. And every season now, I'm trying to come back to those tomatoes and find that experience again. But again, I think you've said this before, John, that Sometimes it's not just the food. Sometimes it's the whole experience that you're chasing. And I feel like maybe I can't replicate it because it was such a unique and special sort of time and the people and the environment and the space we were in and the food we were making. But man, that was an eye-opener for me because we must have made five or six different dishes. Everything had tomatoes in it and everything was delicious and tasted a little bit different. So that was a bit of an epiphany for me as far as cooking and eating and enjoying tomatoes. Number two for me is when I went to Tuscany, I saw rosemary bushes that were the size of Volkswagens everywhere I went. And I never had this experience before. Rosemary was the stuff that grew in the pot in the windowsill in New York, or maybe grew on the side of the house in the garden in Staten Island where I grew up. But man, seeing rosemary bushes everywhere, the size of literally cars, That was a bit of an epiphany for me. And it just goes to show you about Italian food and Italian culture, and that you're just among and amidst the food all the time. We roasted some fish and we had some lemons from the lemon orchard, and we cut a bunch of rosemary off the big bush in the yard, and we put it all together in one of those wire baskets and put it over an open flame and made this beautiful bronzino with lemon and herbs. And that was one of those moments where you just wake up and you're just like, wow. Food is different in different places. It's just the experience of it is very different. So that was a bit of an epiphany for me. That brings us to number one on that same trip. And this one I talk about quite often. I love red wine. And I would say I know a little bit about wine. I wouldn't call myself anywhere near a sommelier. I don't know enough about wine to tell you a whole lot about different regions and all these other things. But I like Italian wine. I know a little bit about Italian wine. And I like Brunello. Brunello del Montuccino is my favorite wine. Now, I've had it before. And, you know, in a restaurant in New York, a decent bottle of Brunello will run you 100 bucks, 125 bucks, maybe more. Well, when I was in Tuscany, a friend of mine was friends with the Vintner at Soldera, which is the premier vintner of Brunello di Montalcino in Italy. And he broke out a bottle that was from 1984. And this is, you know, maybe 2005. So we opened it, we let it breathe for about an hour, and then we drank it. And I've been ruined ever since. I had no idea that wine could be like that. So like when they ask you, is the wine really worth $2,000 a bottle? The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> The answer is unequivocally, yes. The complexity of that wine, the mouthfeel, the taste is not even like, that's like third on the list. It was remarkable to be somebody who actually thought they knew something about wine and then drank that wine and said, I know nothing about wine. I woke up the next day saying, I don't know if I can ever drink another glass of red wine that will ever measure up what I had last night. And then he opened another bottle the next night. So I was wrong. (laughs) And that's my top five, John.
0: Well, I love it. Some very nice epiphanies. Or is it epiphani? Epiphanies, epiphani. I don't know. Let's go with either. As you know, I don't know anyone or almost anything. So I'm not familiar with Martha Rose Schumann. This probably shocks anyone that actually has more than a year and a half history in the food business. So I know that going in. Uh, I'm a savant uh, and a hermit. But chicken bouillabaisse, I can see why that made your epiphany list because until I heard it, I never even considered such a thing. And one of my favorite things to do on Food Wishes is, is take recipes that are made with one thing and make them with another. So, how after this long, I've never thought, let's do a chicken bouillabaisse. I, I'm beside myself. So, I can imagine that. I can almost taste it. And Now, did she finish it with the rouille on top? Yeah. The pounded garlic bread, red pepper, little swirl? All of it. It was so good. I'd eat that every day. Right. And when you said you don't know how many chickens, I was thinking, I know the answer, too many. It's
1: probably true. It's definitely too many chickens.
0: So when you find one that just blows you away and reaches epiphany level, you know that was special. So I'm looking forward to maybe trying that myself. And another thing I like to do, go into your number four pick. Whenever I see a French term, a culinary word or a phrase, I always try to guess what it means. And the next time I'm right will be the first time. <laughs> because I was like, ooh, did he just say he had pig in milk in Louisiana? I don't know why. Because to lot, late. Is that how I say it? Late. Late. It sounds like milk because it's a suckling pig because it's still suckling. I think that's where we're originating. Wow. The first time ever, I guess, possibly sort of right. I had a similar experience uh, in Louisiana, Epiphany. I don't know, I'll call it an Epiphany, but it was close. When I had my first proper boudin ball, which is every part of a pig you can't sell, pureed with rice and chicken livers and mirepoix and just all those beautiful, swampy, herby, Aromatic flavors, and they put it into a sausage casing or they form it into balls and deep fry them. And it is like, until you've had one, you can't even comprehend of such a thing. Right. And what's weird is they, you know, you first are subjected to it that they call like a sausage. And it's like, why are they squeezing this meaty rice out of a sausage casing? Like they didn't even really eat the casing. But anyway, yes, I would love to go to a suckling pig roast in Louisiana sometime. Anytime that becomes available, I might dope myself up and get on a plane and enjoy one of those.
1: I might be able to score you an invite to next year.
0: All right. Thank you. And then number three, I think a lot of people, if you forced people to do this list that we did the top five, like food epiphanies, I think some type of tomato somewhere might make that list. Like somewhere they had their first like actual perfect BLT or when people finally realize one of the great sandwiches in the history of the world is just freshly sliced. Like you said, a nice beefsteak, tomato, salt extra mayonnaise, nice bread. That's a sandwich. You don't even need bacon. And that's saying something. You should like, hold the bacon. I'll have the BLT, hold the bacon and the lettuce. When you have those perfect tomatoes in the perfect setting, it transcends a tomato. I cringe to this day. You'll see a chef on TV doing a demo for something and the poor so-and-so must've been February. And they're doing something that they couldn't get around it. It requires a tomato. And there they are trying to keep a straight face, while they're slicing or concussing a pink mealy tomato from Wegmans. But anyway, yeah, when you have the opposite of that, the epiphany level tomato, and you're like, ah, that's what tomatoes are supposed to taste like. It really is a mind bending experience. Michelle and I went to a farm in uh, Northern California. that had dry farmed early girls, which is one of the sweetest varieties of tomatoes. Not a big tomato, small tomato. The biggest ones get the size, maybe a hardball, but they basically just give them enough water to keep them alive. Like it's called dry farm. It's not literally dry farm, but close to it. And just like grapes that are distressed and have all that extra flavor and complexity and, and residual sugars. Uh, these things just blew my mind. So yeah, if you get the perfect tomato in the perfect setting that was grown right by someone knows what they're doing, there's nothing like it. Rosemary bushes in Tuscany. I've seen these things. <laughs> it's so <laughs> crazy. I went to Italy once with my aunt. We've told the many war stories from that trip on the podcast. My one and only brush with, uh, you know, grand theft beer larceny, uh, (laughs) (laughs) where I drank some poor German tourist uh, beer from the mini fridge. But anyway, yes, the rosemary bushes are the size of small houses. And if you catch them when they're blooming, they have the most gorgeous kind of purple blue flower. Yeah. It is a stunning sight and just talk about fragrance. And, you know, if you're allergic to bees, be careful because there'll be one bee on every single flower. That's right. But yes, I could see that being a very memorable and transformative experience. And then uh, Brunello, I've eaten and drank so many different things. I'm not going to say I've never had it. I don't remember necessarily having it. Unless like you poured it sometime, which could have happened. Very possible. But now that I have it in writing and I can, you know, copy paste it, I'm going to go maybe find some. And you're suggesting an 84 if I can find it. Yeah, you'd need a loan. Can I get a loan? (laughs) Maybe instead of 84, I'll go 2004. How's
1: that? You can get a bottle, you know, that's younger for a reasonable price, but you're not going to get something like this vintage for less than... 2500, maybe more, because this particular vintner, and you might have read about this in the paper a few years back, was they were attacked and they had their tanks sabotaged, and somebody drained out all the wine. So they lost like an entire, however many years of work
0: and wine that was worth millions. Well, well, I'll be on the lookout. Sounds delicious. I'm a fan of wine. I'm not a connoisseur by any means. I'm Famously easy to please, just pour it and I will drink it and probably very much enjoy it. But self-effacing wine humor aside, I do enjoy and can identify a really nice glass of wine and the way you described it. Sounds like something I'd like to do. Absolutely. But I would love to hear your epiphanies, John. All right, here we go. Uh, And these are, I guess, in chronological order. I've had 30 to 75 different epiphanies in my life. So I tried to really, (laughs) really crystallize this down to five that were actually sort of life-changing. The last one we're going to take a little liberty with, but the first one, number five, the squash bird Grand Buffet. Now I'm going to tell this one very quickly because I've told this story two, three times on the podcast before. Yes. The little squash bird, yellow squash carving I did into a bird that basically got me from Montana internship to San Francisco Opera House is the chef Garmage for no apparent reason, a 19-year-old with just no resume to speak of, to be hired there to be loathed and hated by all the actual chefs and cooks. So anyway, why the Squashbird Grand Buffet was such an epiphany. And if you're not familiar with this story, I was in Montana and we had to do this big Grand Buffet. It was one of the final Fridays of the summer. And the employees of this hotel were the top culinary students from around the country. And it was me and a, a guy named Scott from my, Paul Smith's College and CCA, CIA, big heavy hitters. I was literally the worst cook and probably worst educated one there. No offense to Paul Smith, they did a great job. But, you know, CIA had been around for a long time. Those kids knew what they were doing. But that didn't stop me from lying about what I knew to do. <laughs> so when we talked about galantines and pates and ballantines and ice carvings, and look, of course I can do that, I can do this, I can. So anyway, the chef called our bluff. He's like, we're gonna do a grand buffet, Whatever your most impressive display work is, I don't care what it is, put in your purchase order. Everyone gets to do a platter tray. Anyway, I didn't have anything. I made birds out of squash (laughs) and I put them on the buffet. And the epiphany was they were by far the biggest hit of the evening. People were going nuts over these stupid squash birds. They were ignoring pates and galantines and ballantines and things that took a lot of technical skill. And what I learned that evening, because I went from hiding in the back of the kitchen, like, you know what? I think I'm going to clear out the storeroom (laughs) to actually walking with my chest out around the buffet, taking pictures with tourists in front of the squash birds. I realized it is not necessarily always about the high end, the technically difficult, the you know visually just over the top impressive it's about what makes people happy and what people are going to enjoy in a certain setting and if you're a tourist in montana with your family hiking through glacier national park and you find yourself at the Many glacier hotel on a friday night and they're doing a fancy grand french buffet the thing you're going to like is the squash birds <laughs> you don't give two you know what's about a balancing of quail stuff with you know Duck eggs wrapped in uh, fat You want some funny squash birds made out of crookneck squash. And you want the goofy chef that made it out with you, cracking wise and so forth. While I glare at the cooks that were making fun of me over the last six hours as I made these things, thinking I was going to just totally humiliate myself. And they had their just desserts in the form of very not sweet squash birds.
1: And then 30 years later, four and a half million people love Chef John on
0: YouTube. Yes, I got the last laugh. And yes, that indirectly <laughs> was how I got it, <laughs> to where I am today, as, as they say in the brochure. So uh, yeah, Squashbird was my first and most important epiphany when I stopped trying to do fancy high-end stuff. And I just tried to concentrate on what I thought would make people smile and what people would enjoy. Which brings me to number four, a vegetarian, believe it or not, meal I had in Napa, which consisted of grilled summer squash with goat cheese and some beautiful fire roasted peppers. There was some bread on the table. There was some wine, of course. I worked for a couple, Michael and Lenore. They owned Ryan's Cafe in San Francisco. That was my first post opera house, real cook, sous chef, and then eventually chef gig. And they would take me on these little field trips. They could tell I was, you know, I maybe had some potential, but I was just a, uh, was it Tabla Rosa? Am I using that correctly? I was just a complete blank slate. You were green. I was green as green could be. And maybe even hayseed would be accurate. So they would take me you know, here and there. And I remember we're going to go. They had a friend that had a restaurant. I forget the name. It doesn't matter. It Probably closed 20 years ago. Beautiful garden. That was when restaurants started growing their own food. That was the time when Chez Panisse was coming into vogue. And I thought maybe this was an appetizer. Because, you know, up until that point, never in my wildest dreams would I ever think of looking forward to a plate of squash. Vegetables from year zero to 20 were just something that was near the meat.
1: (laughs) Meat adjacent.
0: Yeah, just never even thought, even in culinary school, the vegetables were an afterthought. I don't even remember one class on vegetable cookery or best practice. It was just like, oh, you know what, steam some beans and throw it next to the Wellington. So. This was the first time and it was a literal epiphany. I sat at this table and it was the first time I ever had goat cheese, which just blew my mind. I'd heard of it. I'd never ordered it because it sounded like, why would I eat goat cheese? I'm from Shortsville, New York. It's like cheddar Swiss or American. If you can't put it on a burger, I don't want to eat it. So there was no other option. So I, I would not have ordered any of this. It just was was put on the table from our friends. And I remember, you know, just kind of tucking in, as they say in industry, and The bite of squash, it was remarkable. The funky, sour, I don't even know how you describe goat cheese as someone that's never had it. It's like cream cheese with benefits. It's like a much more complex, tangier, slightly funky, goat funky cream cheese. And if you've never had it on grilled squash with fire roasted peppers over it, you really should try that. It is just a tour de force. And from that day forward, I never thought of vegetables the same way. I actually was like, this is like a whole new kingdom opened up. Like there's, you know, animal, mineral, like, oh, vegetable. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I didn't care if another course was coming. Just dipping that, you know, chunks of beautiful sourdough in that now olive oil drenched squash juice infused soft goat cheese melted from the warmth of the grilled vegetables. You know, the smoky peppers on top, glass of wine. I mean, It was like one of the best meals I've ever had in my life and probably the first actual quote unquote vegetarian meal where I didn't even think like, why don't we get meat? Did did we do something wrong? (laughs) So that was a huge epiphany. And now it all made sense why they took me there because I was the one that was coming up with the specials for the restaurant. And that's right when restaurants started going, you know what? We can't print our menus and laminate them in plastic and have them for three years. We have to actually print out a new menu every week or every day. So I think they just wanted me to expand my repertoire to things that weren't like walking around at one point. And it worked. (laughs) Which brings us to a very similar experience at number three. My first ever French press coffee, which was at a restaurant called True Robert in San Francisco on Valencia Street. I think the chef's name was Robert Reynolds. And Michelle's going to scream if i get this wrong because that was where our first dinner date was there but anyway robert would come into ryan's cafe he was friends with michael and lenore and he would sit at the wine bar and talk shop and i was so impressed by this guy like he's what i wanted to be when i grew up and i knew he had a restaurant in valencia did not have true robert funds at that point but eventually (laughs) a couple years later did and i took michelle to dinner there and just absolutely delicious meal classic french country fare at the end of it, would you like coffee? Yes, we would with the dessert. And here comes this carafe to the table with this plunger in it. And I have no idea what's happening. I've never in my life seen French press before. At True Robert, it is not a plunger. It is a plunger. Oh, excusez-moi. A plunger. <laughs> oh, so anyway, to that point in my life, again, I'm not that old. I'm very early 20s. I never had a coffee that wasn't coffee. From a glass, you know, carafe, from a drip industrial size Uh, at home, it was just a drip machine, Mr. Coffee, who I believe Mr. Coffee, that's where they get the name for coffee after that guy. (laughs) I never even considered there was anything other than just coffee. The one exception, I remember going into North Beach, I went into Cafe Trieste one time and actually got a cappuccino. But other than that, I never actually had a coffee. This is before Starbucks in every corner. So it comes to the table and I'm trying to not act like a goofball. Like, Hey, what's that? Why is there a plongée on top? The waiter, the server, we called them waiters back then. They didn't say server yet. The waiter says, "Have you had this before and Michelle shakes her head. No. And I say, sh- okay, well, we got to let it sit here for about four or five minutes. And then you can go ahead and plunge it down slowly. Not too fast. Or it was warned us it will spill. So we got the instructions. So we're staring at this thing. Perfect date thing too, by the way, because you get to like, you know, sexy talk for five minutes while you're waiting to do your plongée. Is am I saying that right? Oh, yes. Speaking of plongée, (laughs) hey-oh. Anyway, so we push down the plongée and it presses this coffee through the boiling water and then you pour it into your cups. And it was the first time I actually ever tasted coffee. From what I hear is God intended. And it was absolutely an epiphany because you can't go back once you've had actual real coffee, French press. You just don't grab a Mr. Coffee and go, "Mm, that's pretty good too. Like no other coffee. It's like drinking triple IPAs and then someone hands you a Coors Light. Like it just doesn't have the same magic.
1: Well, it's similar to my wine story, right? You know, you can't go back from that.
0: So I'll never forget that cup of coffee. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Michelle's first French press. Great dinner, great night, great restaurant. And my coffee epiphany was much appreciated because I moved on to uh, bigger and better coffee adventures. Which brings us to number two. Chicken and couscous at the Frick Winery after Passport to Dry Creek Valley Wine Festival. Let me explain. Well, first of all, let me explain what Passport is. The Passport is an event they have in Dry Creek, Appalachian, in Sonoma. I don't know how many wineries, 30 maybe, 25, 30. But every year they did a big festival where every winery hired a chef or a caterer or did it themselves and they would do a specific menu paired to their wines and you'd buy a passport and with this passport very coveted big waiting list the whole nine yards people would go around either on their own or in buses or in vans and they would go to each winery and you get your passport stamped that you tasted the wine at this winery and enjoyed the food pairing so michelle and i did this for our really great friend bill frick without a doubt the finest wine in sonoma and i'm extremely prejudiced and not objective, but I still stand by that statement. Absolute delicious Rhone varietals. Just if you're into Rhone wines and those kind of that French style, just you'll absolutely love it. But anyway, he would send us a case of wine about a month and a half before this event. And we would taste the wine and we would come up with these little bites to pair with it. It was such fun. It was like a spring ritual. I think it was like the third weekend in April every year. It was a thousand people a day. So it was like heavy duty, exhaustion level by Sunday night. So Bill would have the crew, whoever worked on the food and whoever poured the wine in the wine barn. And then of course, whoever worked with him at the winery, he would have everyone, 12, 15 people in his relatives that would come up and help his sons and daughters and grandkids. And he would have a beautiful dinner Up at the house, overlooking this just absolutely postcard perfect, picturesque wine vineyard, I guess is the correct term. And what he would serve was the simplest meal you can ever imagine. And the first time I had it, when I heard this is what was happening, I was picturing, you know, something Sonoma wine, like Sunset Magazine. (laughs) platters of just picturesque fruits and vegetables and like someone walking with like a whole salmon. But anyway, the first time we ever did this, it was a platter of pretty much plain couscous, steamed couscous, chicken stock, salt, maybe a little bit of butter. I don't know. Some grilled chicken, salt, maybe a few herbs, some grilled asparagus, and then his array of just some of the world's best wine. And that was dinner. And it was so Spartan. I'll use the word Spartan, possibly incorrectly. Uh, that's what I'm trying to convey. Just strip down bare bones. But just when you're that hungry and you're that tired and you're that relieved to be over a just really hard, not traumatic is not the right word, but just exhausting, draining experience. It was absolute perfection. And similar to the squash goat cheese lunch in Napa, it was like, this is Not what I expected and not if I was in that place, what I would have served, because of course I'm all would be up in my ego trying to like impress everybody, but it was perfect. And he would do that same meal, give or take a side dish every year, the grilled chicken with the couscous and the vegetable and just the wine. And it was all about the conversation and the sharing funny stories would happen over that weekend. And that was just a real epiphany in hospitality and pairing the right meal with the right setting. And when you just want to dial it back, you want to not try. You just want to be nourished. You're not trying to impress anyone with anything. It's just, here's some delicious food on platters, family style, dig in. Let's just wind down and celebrate this great weekend we just had. And then one kind of funny anecdote from that, what became sort of a running gag, Bill, because it was like you know 12, 15 people at this dinner, he would fire up his gas grill and his charcoal grill So we could cook all the chicken at once. So one year I had the bright idea. You know what? There's this age old would taste better. Chicken off a grass grill, chicken off a charcoal grill. Some people say it tastes the same. It's the the drippings hit the flames and that's what makes the smoky. So we're like, you know, let's do a platter, of one platter, the other. We'll do a taste test. So we got to the dinner table about halfway through the dinner. Someone says, hey, which one was the? (laughs) We had no idea, of course, because we're three bottles of wine and a half a joint in at this point. So we'll do it next year. Next year comes around, same meal. Always look forward to this. One of my favorite nights of the year. Oh, don't forget. We got to do this. We got to separate. And I would always like do one of the grills. He would do the other or combination. Every year, never failed. (laughs) We'd be about halfway through with our plates and someone would say, wait a minute. Weren't we supposed to see which one was? Oh, damn it. So anyway, we never actually did the test, (laughs) but it was actually more funny just to have the running joke going. That was a really fun experience. I miss that. I don't miss catering that event. It was quite debilitating, even for a 25, 30-year-old. But now I would just, you know, keel over. <laughs> but really great memories. Uh, which brings us to a very recent epiphany at number one. Two different-sized rigatoni ragu at a recent dinner party at a neighbor of ours. Explain. I will. Mary and Paul. Some neighbors we met at another neighbor's house. Where's
1: Peter? You got no Peter in there? I
0: got no Peters, but they are extremely Catholic, apparently, hence the names. And Mary comes up. And she says, oh my God, I'm sorry to just be coming up in your face. We haven't really even met yet, but my daughter and my son-in-law are just huge fans of yours. And we figured out because we ran into another neighbor that that was the Kismet house and that's where Chef John lives. And we're like, who the hell is Chef John? And they explained it and then it connected like, oh my God, that's what my son-in-law, that's the guy he's talking about. So anyway, they realized they live next to Chef John. So emailed their daughter and son-in-law like, oh, you'll never guess who lives next to us and so forth. Long story short, her daughter, Catherine, and son-in-law, Sean, were gonna be visiting. And she said, do you think, you could make it over for a dinner party. They'd love to meet you. We're just going to have a simple pasta dinner. And I said, I'd love to, honored, would love to do that. So Michelle and I go over and they're cooking dinner for me. And I'm always have to do the, don't be intimidated. I have horrible taste. I love everything. I'm the easiest dinner party guest ever. I never criticize. I just <laughs> ha- So I always try to like take the edge off because some people are very intimidated cooking for chefs. In, in other cooks. Yeah, of course. So, anyway, they didn't seem like they were too worried. And I was like, this is good. And they're doing, I think, maybe use my ragu recipe or a version of it. Anyway, the food comes to the table. We've had a lovely evening thus far, beautiful appetizers. And they set this bowl of rigatoni on the table. Paul, who was a butcher in San Francisco for many years, has homemade sausage from his butcher shop. So, we are feasting. And I'm about three or four bites in. And oh my God, this is delicious. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. And I realize, that inside the rigatoni is a slightly smaller rigatoni. (laughs) Okay. so I'm like, hold on, let me make sure I'm feeling and seeing and tasting and biting what's actually going on here. So take a couple more bites. I'm like, yeah, pretty much every large rigatoni, standard size rigatoni has a slightly smaller rigatoni inside of it. Pregnant rigatonis. It was, yes, exactly. Now I'm presented with this incredible dilemma. Do I acknowledge and ask if it was done on purpose? (laughs) Because I'm now, I don't know, what am I, 59? I've never been served two different size pastas in the same bowl, especially being cooked by someone that's theoretically trying to impress this chef that they're big fans of online. But, you know, I can't help myself. So I got to say something. So I wait till an appropriate pause in the conversation. I said, you know what? I got to ask. This is absolutely delicious. This sauce is to die for. Pasta is perfectly cooked. Thank you so much. Couldn't appreciate it more. But I have to ask, did you do the two different sizes of rigatoni on purpose? And they kind of chuckled and laughed and looked at each other, Sean and Catherine. Before they cooked it, they didn't think they had enough of the big one. So Sean actually ran to the store, which makes the story even better. Because instead of just buying enough of one size, he just bought enough to make the amount that they already had work. No, I'm just loving this story. Everything about it, I'm in love with. And why it was an epiphany is because they didn't care. They just were serving some delicious food to their parents and these new friends they met. It never even dawned on them that that would be a problem. And it wasn't. They timed the pasta perfectly. Both sizes were perfectly cooked. And I would have been going out of my mind if I was serving you <laughs> and friends this Italian dinner and I'm trying to impress you and your friends. And all of a sudden I realize I'm stuck and it's too late. I have to put two different sized pastas together to make the dinner work. I would have been beside myself. I would have been just in a panic. You know, I have a little bit of the social anxiety anyway, and this would have just totally set me over the top. <laughs> so the day after the dinner party, I sent them an email like explaining how much I appreciated that experience. It was an epiphany that opened my eyes to stop obsessing over trying to get everything perfect at a dinner party or forget a dinner party, just when you're serving anything to anybody. It's not about that. It was about what we did all evening, which was have a great time, drink wine, eat delicious food, share stories, laugh. And the food is just a prop in this environment. It's not the end all be all which is how I usually think of the food and maybe you think of the food and you're doing Thanksgiving and you're so you know, upset the turkey's dry and you forgot this, you forgot that. And it's like, it's not about that. It's about the people around the table and everyone having a good time. So that they were so casual and so fearless to serve me two different size rigatoni in the same bowl. I was beyond impressed. And it actually was like my most recent and maybe most favorite epiphany ever because it was so, I don't know, organic of an experience and natural and no one tried to do anything. It just worked out that way. Uh, it was just funny, the sitting there for those 30 seconds trying to figure out like, how am I going to say this? I, don't, I don't, clearly don't want to seem like I care, like I was upset, but it's something as a chef, if I don't ask, this will just drive me insane. <laughs> All right. I'll end up in a straitjacket. So I have to ask. and Anyway, that was my most recent epiphany. So if they're listening, thank you so much. A fantastic evening, great bowl of pasta. And it opened my eyes to try not to be a lunatic when I'm cooking for people, (laughs) uh, obsessing over every detail of perfection and just focus on the important stuff. Well,
1: John, I have one comment on your top five. Yes. You know when you've been through an experience that just it goes through and you're exhausted and that meal at the end of it is going to be like the greatest thing you've ever tasted? Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm going to eat as soon as this top five is
0: over. I told you it was going to be a long one.
1: I know, I know. We've been at this a while. Whatever drive you are on, you are there. You absolutely are sitting in the driveway trying to listen to the rest of this show. But we love you. And that's why we give you as much as we have. And that brings us to our last segment, a
0: peek behind the curtain. John, give me a peek behind your curtain. Well, I beg your pardon? I'm happy to. <laughs> I think you mean a peek behind your sheet because I am in my ghost costume that I'm trying out for trick or treating. Oh, well, OK. My peek behind the curtain is why the heck does food come out so much better when you're not filming it? Why does it taste better, look better? You know, once in a while I'll I'll just go cold and just film something and that you know, one take, John, and I'm done. It worked, or it didn't work, and that's the video anyway. Hey, here's why it didn't work. But, I, you know, occasionally I'll test a new recipe or a new technique. That test almost always comes out better than what ends up in the video when I do it on purpose. (laughs) I think we might have talked about this in the sports context, if you try too hard, it doesn't work. Like if you try not to slice a golf ball, it will slice further. If you're, you know, a pitcher and your dudes, if you try not to do that, it will even accentuate that much more. So I think this is probably common in many lines of work, but when it comes to cooking, food never comes out as well if you try too hard, which I think goes back To my top five list which i'd like to revisit now and maybe oh god no please don't go back (laughs) so my peek behind the curtain is to let everyone know what they see in the final video whether they think it looks good or not trust me it looked much better (laughs) probably tasted better when i wasn't filming it or the next time i made it after the film that one probably came out really good too
1: That's an interesting thought, John. And I can imagine that, yes, the pressure of trying to make it work on the spot will definitely hamper the effort in some way. So I do think that is a psychological block. I think you could take this up with your therapist. And I do think there might be some medication for this. So at any point, if you need some help, I have a food stylist in San Francisco to be happy to help you out. Very good. (laughs) Well, I have one as well. And a little peek behind my curtain is I was working with a cookbook client and it was a household name. I will not mention them but they were a household name of the highest order and there were a lot of layers to the preparation and making this cookbook and what was interesting was that we got to the final part of this after doing a 50 recipe cookbook which of course is who's paying the bills and there was a huge misunderstanding as to who is actually responsible for paying for all the food now you could imagine that a line item for 50 recipe cookbook for your food cost was pretty high. Now, luckily, nobody thought it was my responsibility to pay for the food. But there were two other entities that were involved in this project. And they each thought the other one was supposed to pay for the food. So even though you're working with people who have done these things before, even though you're working people who are professionals at the highest order, a food shoot is a unique beast. And not everybody always knows what's happening. And something like food cost for 50 recipes, which of course each have to be made two or three times for a cookbook, was quite considerable. It got pretty heated and it got pretty ugly (laughs) pretty quick. When the bills start coming in, it's sort of like, well, we kind of thought this, well, that, oh, that, oh, that, And then there's lots of hard feelings.
0: So are you able to tell us who ended up paying?
1: I can't divulge any of those things without probably fear of repercussions. (laughs) So you signed an NDA. This got so ugly. It was pretty ugly, but I'll just say this. There was a major corporation and a television show that were at both ends of this project. Yeah, that's a big help.
0: If it makes everyone feel any better, I'm going to find out offline who this was. (laughs) And then on one of these shows in the future, I will totally blurt it out and Andrew won't be able to do anything because it'll be done. At the end of every show, we
1: talk about what we learned today, and uh, I can think about quite a few things and what we've learned today. I- I'm going to keep my thoughts to myself on this one, but John,
0: what did we learn today? Well, against my better judgment, I will summarize a few things, <laughs> because we clearly learned more than we've ever learned. Indeed. Yeah, and I think you know the main thing we learned is possibly a top five list might have a certain timeout. <laughs> It happens. In the future, yes. So we're going to put a shot clock. Apparently, I only get 30 minutes per top five list now to ramble through my list. But no, seriously, uh, if you are one of these people that's always arguing with your friend about the right way to pronounce mandolin, and they're like, it's mandolin. And you're like, no, dude, mandolin. We got good news for you. And this came, again, compliments of our lovely and talented producer. You can say mandolin or mandolin. Amen. Of course, if you don't want to sound goofy, say mandolin. That sounds better. Number two, this was a really subtle one that you probably didn't even think I was paying attention to this, but I was when you were in Italy talking about rosemary bushes. And then you mentioned roasting seafood. Mm-hmm. Rosemary is an underrated fish herb. It is never, ever paired with fish, almost never. It's, you know, tarragon, parsley, dill, of course, fish. People love it. Rosemary, though, if you're careful not to do too, too much, is a really beautiful, beautiful herb with fish. In fact, barbecued shrimp, speaking of Louisiana where you were earlier, it's called barbecued shrimp. It's really just kind of Worcestershire sauce, shrimp and rosemary and black pepper, and it's pan fried, and it's one of the most delicious things you'll ever have. And it is a rosemary-based seafood dish, which is surprising and delicious. Try it sometime. And then I think the last thing we learned, and I wanted to keep this in the Halloween theme, if you're doing therapy and it's not going quite how you imagined, (laughs) And you feel like you're close to a breakthrough, but the therapist just is not giving you what you need. I would suggest, and I think I speak for Andrew as well. We would suggest kidnapping them, (laughs) chaining them in your basement. Let me do the ghost sound. And keep them chained up. Do a session every night. There's something about having your ankles shackled that really gets your therapeutic juices flowing. So I think that's the most important thing we learned. Never settle for a mediocre experience at the therapist. Take things into your own hands. Show some initiative. I don't know where you buy shackles, but you know you can Google it. In fact, you probably don't want to Google shackles. But anyway, you'll find them. Try that. See if it works. If it does, leave us a comment on the uh, social <laughs> media. And, uh, and we will forward you the contact info to our law firm. And we'll let them take it from there. Or you could just watch the patient. Or better yet. And of course we're kidding. Just watch the patient. Anyway, that's it. We learned so much. We appreciate you listening to all this. I disagree with Andrew. I think our top five list could have went a little longer, but you let us know in the comments. But anyway, we're done and there's only one thing left to do and that's say good night, Andrew. Good night, Andrew.